Hi, I hurt my lifers. Have you ever felt like you didn't fit in at school? Were you surrounded by people telling you you'd never amount to anything? If so, you know how devastating that can be, especially when you know you're meant for something more. So how do you move past those old stories and mindsets that might be holding you back today? Today's guest is Philip McKernan. He's someone I first met at Robin Sharma's event called the Titan Summit in 2016. And the truth is, Philip wasn't even meant to be a guest on today's episode. One of our intended guests canceled at the last minute and Philip stepped in. And it was a miracle that he was even available. He's been writing his second book and has been really, really busy, but literally had this slot, this time slot available just for us on the I Heart My Life show. And when Philip and I started to record the episode, I told him there must be something he's about to share that I need to hear and that the I Heart My Lifers listening to this also need to hear. And believe me, it truly was meant to be. The vulnerability that Philip shares with us is going to blow you away. There are some really heartfelt and actually difficult stories that you're going to be exposed to today from Philip's past that have really helped him become the person he is today. And he could have let those stories stop him. He could have let those moments be an indication that he wasn't meant for something big, but he didn't. And I believe this is one of those hours that will change the way you look at your own difficult moments and really help you drop your own victim story and seize the day. For me, this episode is about never giving up and creating more meaning in your own life. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Welcome to the I Heart My Life show with success coach, Emily Williams. Tune in daily to learn how to design a life you love, create more success and wealth, move past fear and blocks, and bring more joy into your life and business. It's time to create a life that's better than your dreams. Hey everyone, it's Emily Williams here, the founder of I Heart My Life, and this is the I Heart My Life show. And I'm so excited because we have someone who I'm super inspired by here with us today. Philip McKernan is an amazing, inspirational speaker, writer, and filmmaker. And I've actually had the pleasure of seeing him speak twice at the Titan Summit, which is Robin Sharma's incredible event that James and I have both attended um, two years in a row. So honestly, we are so blessed to have Philip here. Um, Philip works with entrepreneurs and business leaders all over the world. When and he, uh, when people are seeking clarity about their future or want to move through roadblocks, seen and unseen, they call Philip. As a speaker, he has inspired and challenged the Canadian Olympic team and the Pentagon, to name a few. With a knack of getting into all sorts of scenarios, he's caddied in golf for the president of Ireland, been chased and nearly killed by a bull elephant in Nigeria, and made wine in Australia. He has traveled to 80 countries around the globe, has worked with orphans in Sri Lanka, Peru, India, and Guatemala, written four books despite being dyslexic, and his first documentary film was released in late 2016. He believes the path to a happy and fulfilling life is found through the meaning we derive in life through work we do, our relationship to others, and most importantly, the relationship with oneself. So, Philip, so excited to have you here. Thank you for for being on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's quite an intro. You've done many things. (laughs) 
I have, and that doesn't even cover half of them. I feel I've often said this to people I know very well, or my wife, I feel I've lived three separate lives. I've done so much in my life. I don't mean it all successful, far from it, but uh, I've done a lot, I've traveled a lot, I've traveled to you know 80 something countries, and I feel like I've therefore lived uh, a lot, um, and uh, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way as well. I'm sure you've learned from all of them. So what I'd yeah, love- Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> What I love to do on this show, normally everyone seems to have this moment where everything changes course and it sort of sets them on this new trajectory in their life. And so my first question for you is, do you have a moment like that? Yeah, I've got a number of them. Actually, one just came to mind as you said that is uh, probably the moment that has shaped me in some regards as coming out, coming out, like coming out of the closet. My coming out of the closet is becoming a speaker. Uh, the very thing that, you know, arguably in school, I didn't ever want it. I wanted to hide. I didn't want to be seen. I was dyslexic. I was embarrassed. I was inadequate. I was, I had no confidence. I didn't believe in myself and so on. The moment happened for me that comes to mind was a best man speech in Ireland. And it was a little hotel called the Spa Hotel in Lucan County, Dublin, just outside of the of Dublin major city. And the theater, the old, like the, the, the room that this couple were getting married, my buddy, uh, happened to be an old theater, so it had a stage. And I'll never forget saying yes to being his best man and very quickly going, holy shit, a best man in Ireland anyway. There's one best man, one speaker or speech or whatever, and it's typically the best man, then maybe the groom and so on and so forth. And immediately going, I just can't, I just can't do this. I mean, you know, people still are amazed that I get so nervous to, to this day speaking always. Anyway, fast forward to the wedding day. I tried everything to get out of it. And then I decided, no, I'm going to do it. It's not about me. And then I decided I'd be funny and I'd try to be this and I'd try to be that. And it was all going to shit basically. And on the day I turned up and I kind of, I think to some extent I let go. And I just decided to be there, not for me, not to look good, but for the bride and groom. And I shared what I felt to my core I needed to share on behalf of almost the audience towards them. I came down off the stage. I got this massive standing ovation, which sounds cool, but it wasn't to me because I wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. I was so embarrassed. I get this massive standing ovation. People were crying. They weren't even drunk. Like this was early in the day. I came off the stage. I walked down the steps. And the first person I meet is this stranger who obviously is from... Um, the bride's side, who I never knew, complete stranger, walks up to me, a guy crying, looks me straight in the eyes and says, oh, my God, if I ever get married, will you be my best man? And I looked at him and I told him to go F off, basically. And and he hugs me and he says, no, my, you've got a gift. Now, I'd love to tell you that moment I heard that everything transformed, everything changed. I put everything into action. I became a speaker within four and a half hours, not four and a half days. And everything was awesome. It was probably some six or seven years later before I really started to act upon the very thing I knew deep down I needed to do in this earth. But that man, and I still don't know who he is to this date, um, that man sparked something in my brain, something in my heart that ordinarily was lying dormant. Wow, I love that story. I know that pressure as well. I've had to give one of those speeches um, as a maid of honor, and there is a lot of pressure to be funny and entertaining. And that's such a beautiful illustration of this thing that's inside of you that maybe you knew was there, maybe you didn't, but this random person sparked that. And I think that happens for so many of us. And that's why I love to ask this question, because there's always some moment that we look back and say, okay, ah, uh, that is when something happened. That's when things started to change. Yeah, totally. Totally. So you said it took six years, though. So what happened afterwards? And what was the delay about? 
Yeah, I mean, when I say six years, I don't know exactly, but it was quite some time, but it was definitely many years, many, many years. And I think it was around five or six years before I did my first official massive speaking event. Oh, it was huge. Uh, there was five people in the room. I think I was one of the five, so technically four in the audience. And uh, at that point, I was disappointed because there wasn't enough people. And then I was pissed off and I had no right to be. And that was an also an interesting dilemma and dynamic and, and opportunity and, 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 and thing. Um, basically, it was a lack of confidence, a lack of belief, uh, not having a degree, not like a formal education, not feeling that I had anything worth saying, not telling myself the story that I needed to make it big financially first, and then I could have a story to share the world. Because a lot of us determine ourselves, um, monitor our success based on monetary re reward and return. And the reality is all that time, you know, I did have a story, I did have value. Um, I didn't know everything. I still don't know everything and, I'm, I, and I never will. But I do know some stuff and I just didn't believe myself. And nor was I, and I'm not blaming everybody else. I take full responsibility, but also the circles I was in at that time, we weren't having those deep, rich conversations um, to kind of almost provide an environment to challenge me to think outside of the box. It was I was living in a very... Um, beautiful in many respects, but very closed world. And that's some that's partly why we left Ireland, the country that I love. I know nothing bad against it at all. But I left Ireland because I felt I needed to get away from what I knew in order to find out what I didn't. Beautiful. So I want to come back to that. I'd love for people to get a sense of where you did grow up and the environment that you're talking about. And um, just take us back to to when you were growing up and what your experience was. Yeah, well, I'll tell you a gross moment that I don't share that often, but a great gross moment uh, for some is the day I, I, I remember this memory about two years ago, and I was literally sitting as a kid, I was, I was thinking back in my life, and I didn't want, I literally didn't want to remember this memory, but it was true, and I got really embarrassed and, and very ashamed of the experience, and I remember telling my wife, and this is like not even two, maybe less than two years ago, it still feels very raw, and I remembered myself sitting in school about 13, 14 years old, counting the dandruff on the child's shoulders in front of me. Now, I know it's in isolation, it might sound gross, and in non-isolation, it might sound gross, but let me give you some context. Why I was doing that was I felt I was going insane. So I was I couldn't read and write uh, like everyone else. I certainly was my reading was appalling, but they didn't have a mechanism in, in, in my school. And certainly in those days, not that I'm 105 to recognize dyslexia, pick it up and the subtleties of it and so on. And my my fear was that at any moment for seven, eight hours a day, every day, I had this horrible feeling, this pit in my stomach that I'd be picked on to read publicly and my, I would be exposed. And my being exposed, my secret was I was stupid, not my secret was I was dyslexic because I didn't know what dyslexia was, that my peers, the people that I desperately wanted to love me and like me and accept me would know that I am actually stupid, not lazy, stupid. And um, of course, I realized now that was different. So looking at the floor, I would get caught out. Looking at the teacher, I would get caught out. So they they'd notice me. But looking at the shoulder on the kid in front of me was safe enough. And secondly is I counted the dandruff to stay sane, to literally stay sane. Um, so yeah, tough, tough, tough time. Um, one of the teachers one day looked at me and said, you're, you amount to nothing in this room. And she pointed to the window and she says, you're going to amount to nothing out there, meaning life. Um, so that's kind of the, the one extreme, like the painful parts. And there's they're just, just some of them. And then the brighter sides was I did have loving parents and I had parents who committed to me, who didn't put me under pressure, accepted me for who I was. Um, never always brought us up to believe that no one was better than we were. No one was on a pedestal. You know, no one 
deserved respect more than you can give yourself. At the same time, um, we had parameters about you know how we treated people and so on and so forth. So I had those, those two extremes. And by the way, the one golden nugget in all of this was a, a tra- uh, my teacher Trevor Garrett, who who cared you know deeply for me, looked after me, believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. So that gives you a sense. So I grew up in Dublin in Ireland, and uh, Ireland is amazing. I just I needed to leave to to reinvent. Yeah, it is an amazing country. James told me to wear green today on this interview to speak to you, but I didn't. Well, yeah, you were, you're wearing green. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was looking down to see. I don't have any green on. No, I ended up with black, but next time. Um, so I'm curious to know, for me, I always had this feeling that I was meant for something big. I went through a quarter-life crisis, was depressed for many years, and so there was some amount of time where I, I didn't know what that was, but there was still that belief. Even when people were telling you that you weren't going to amount to anything, did you feel that that wasn't true? Uh... I think I heard it for so long, for so many years, I actually began to believe it was true, mm-hmm. fundamentally, that I was I was broken. There was something fundamentally wrong with me, and I was different. Um, and I remember my biggest break, and this is something I've never shared publicly. Uh, I don't know why I'm sharing it today, but let's see what happens. Um, but I remember getting the biggest break in my life at that t- time. I was about 15, and I went to a very dominant rugby school, like a, like a sports school. And sports was everything. If you were good at sports, it didn't matter how you were in academics, you got away with everything. And I remember being picked for the junior cup team, which would have been was huge. I was in fourth year, as we would say in, uh, in, in, in Europe. I'm not sure what that equates to in the U.S. schooling system. But I was in fourth year, and I remember getting selected for this, uh, for this team. And my brothers had never been selected for this team. This was a big deal. And as three brothers, we were quite competitive. I was being the youngest. And um, not just did I did I what did I hear about this? But the whole school told me about it. So 650 people saw my name on the board and we broke up for, I think it was Easter break. And this was like, despite all of my pain, all of my suffering to some extent, I was thinking, holy shit, there's, 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 there's life here. This is my break. I can't believe someone sees something in me that I don't see in myself. And one of the teachers who was a captain or manager of the team, he didn't like me because he thought I was lazy, but I wasn't. As I said earlier on, I was dyslexic. I struggled, but I wasn't lazy. He removed my name during the break. So when I came back to school, I'll never forget going to that notice board. I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, the humiliation, staggering. 650 people seeing your name removed from the board. No explanation, no one pulling me aside, no one saying to me, you know what, this is the, re- you're just not good enough, you're not sporty enough, you're not strong enough, you're not, no explanation, just my name up in front of everybody, my name removed without any explanation. And I, I'm sharing that because, you know, when you get so many kicks in the teeth, it, you almost start to feel you're broken. At the same time, there was something in me, and I don't know if it was inspired by others, but there was something in me that believed that I was destined for something different. I didn't know if it was something big or small or whatever. I think I thought it was big. So the bigger I made it, the more insignificant I felt because I felt like it was the top of Mount Everest and I was at the bottom, but I wasn't even dressed for climbing. I was in, I was in my, my speedos and I had no boots and I had no, like you know, no, yeah, I had no climbing picks. I had nothing. So I felt so deeply inadequate as I considered something big. I think what I did was I softened and I gained some compassion from somewhere and realized that maybe it's not something big, but it's just something different. And that allowed me to put one foot in front of the next, in front of the next, in front of the next. So what did that look like? When did you start putting one foot in front of the next? Was it after the best man speech? 
Yeah, it was definitely after school because I felt school was a prison to me. Like school was being incarcerated in a maximum security prison without having any breath. And it was basically, yeah, I think that, I think it was after that. It was. That was the first time I was recognized publicly for me, not publicly because of something I could do or a magic trick. It was because of my of because of who I was. And that began this 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 journey, albeit slow, one could argue, but now I look back, it wasn't slow at all. Um I needed to be that organic. And it did allow me to start and one thing no almost no one knows about me is that i coached for years in ireland in a pub believe it or not coaching people one-on-one -on -one because i couldn't afford a meeting space and i'd meet upstairs in this little pub and we didn't have any alcohol and we'd meet at this little round table which is partly in this hallway and it was kind of noisy and i would meet you i'd meet a person for one hour every week for six weeks and they could pay me a contribution that we would give to charity and i did this for years for free, basically, oh, sorry, it wasn't free. They pay something, we give it to charity, but I didn't get paid for it. So I took the whole money and the whole thing off the table. So there was no kind of like any, um, just I didn't want to complicate it with money. I wanted to just see what this would be like. So I did that for years. So I was doing stuff along the way. The one thing that I'm very good at doing, um, sometimes I'm slow, but sometimes, you know, I do execute very fast, is taking action. And I have a quote, in the absence of clarity, take action. Because sometimes when we're paralyzing ourselves with the uncertainties of A or B, sometimes you just pick one and just see what happens or choose to not pick either, which is also action in its own right. So the action on the small things have really led me to a, a large degree of success in terms of what I do now. Oh, I love that. Marie Forleo has an amazing quote that's similar. She says, clarity comes from engagement, not from thinking about it. There you go. Exactly. There you go. So I'm yeah. curious, how did you discover coaching? Because, you know, even in England, where I am at the moment, it's still it still feels like it's up and coming, like especially comparing to the US. So how did you discover coaching while living in Ireland? I was always a coach. My mother, if you ask my mother here, you if you if you ask my mother, is Philip a coach, you would know what you're talking about. But if you explained what a good coach can do, my mother would go, Oh sure, God, Jesus, he's been doing that all his life. Uh, in other words, creating a space for allowing people to share um, without judgment and challenging people accordingly. I've done that all my life, and I think most people do. The problem is when we go to put a label of coaching on it, I think then that's where it becomes messy. And then, the, and then also the emergence of, you know, 7.5 million life coaches in my town alone. Um, you know, I'm obviously be, I'm obviously joking to make a point, but everyone now has become a life coach. And then you get people who aren't necessarily ready. They don't really want to be a life coach. They're not even equipped right now to be a life coach, or maybe they just haven't done the work themselves on it. And of course, equal that with you know multiple people who are incredible at this. Um, but the concept of coaching as it stands, I mean, I was first introduced to coaching by a guy called Les Hewitt, who wrote a book called The Power of Focus. Um, he wrote books with uh, um, the guys from Chicken Soup for the Soul, etc. The first time I met him was on a golf course randomly in Canada. I was on holidays, and he told me he wrote a book called The Power of Focus. And my instant thought process was process was, holy shit, I'm in a cult. I'm part of this cult just for a day in the golf course. This guy's wacko. Turns out that he was an amazing human being and a love for people, a deep desire to help people move the needle. And coaching, that was the first time I, because I thought of it, coaching was like golf coaches or soccer coaches. I never imagined you could coach people to get out of their own way, to see what's possible for their lives. But in essence, really what I do is I help people do what I needed somebody to do for me all those years. I think it's that simple. I want to pause here just for one second and pick up there when we get back from the break. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that, because I think that's how a lot of us in this industry do get started is by you know using our own journey and thinking about what we needed at the time and bringing that to people today. 
So let's start yeah. there. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. We're back from the break. It's Emily Williams here, the founder of I Heart My Life, and this is the I Heart My Life show. And before the break, if you were listening, Philip was telling us all about his incredible journey from growing up in Ireland and experiencing a environment that was definitely not supportive that really taught him that he actually wasn't going to amount to anything. And so many of you, I'm sure listening, have experienced that. And today's episode is really about taking that and turning it into good and becoming that person that deep down you might have always wanted to be or knew you were meant to be. So Philip, I'd love for you to tell a little bit, to share a little bit about once you discovered coaching, what were the next steps? Or you've always been a coach, you said, but once you started to take those action steps and actually work with clients, can you take us on the journey from those free sessions in the pub, which I love, I'm totally going to tell James about that, um, to moving forward and actually charging for the amazing work that you do? Yeah, I mean, that was very, I, I, I mean, like a lot of people, I believe we've got a lot of messed up, and I actually work with a lot of people around money, around the relationship to money, which is often very deeply dysfunctional. So I had my own challenges around money. And I also had a challenges with like selling bottles of wine or selling coffee, which is what I did in different times in my life. I, I had no problem asking you for $10 for a bottle of wine, but because there was something, it was external, it was outside of me. It was like, no, this wine is amazing. It's made by a guy called Peter Lehman in Australia, amazing man, and I tell the whole story. But when it came to charging for me, for my services, for my wisdom, for my insights, for my just my, my time, I struggled deeply, deeply with that. And I still hang on to some of that crap as well. Um, so, that, so the evolution was, um, I suppose, a big, a big part of my evolution was uh, doing a, doing a talk in a school and the teacher, the headmaster coming back to me. Um, so first of all, I did a talk and this is back to the five people that I mentioned earlier on. And when I did that talk, there was a guy in the room who said, I'd love you to come and speak to my students. And of course, at this point I had, I, I was, I was becoming complacent and arrogant, quite frankly. And I now began to think that I had real kind of like, but it was intellectual awareness as opposed to emotional awareness that I had value to give the world. And this guy said, I'd like you to come to my school. Now, <clears throat> based on my previous story about my experience with school, it was like, forget about it. I'm not going back to school under any circumstances. Carry me in a coffin if you want to, but that's it. And he kept hounding me. And eventually I went back to the school. It was a community college in a place called Castle Lock in Dublin. And I delivered this, this, this talk to about 20 students. And there was about 150 students in the year. And the two conditions were they had to be there by choice and they had to pay two or three dollars. We give it to a charity. So they're giving a value. They're putting like they're actually paying something over it. So they're just they're choosing to be there. And the following, I think I dropped a few F-bombs, which would be not unusual for me. And um, and I kind of did that intentionally just to show the students that I was not a traditional teacher. And the following day, we got a phone call and the headmaster wanted to talk to me. So a secretary put me on. I went, oh, my God, this is what my parents probably had every week from school. What did I do now? And I get on the call and uh, he said, we, we have a problem. And I said, I bet we do. 
So what's the problem? He said, we had a line of students complaining that they couldn't get into the workshop, that we didn't explain what you did. And all the other ones that were there were raving about you. And the following week I came back and I'll never forget walking into the school. And it was the first time in my entire existence ever on earth where I saw people wanting something from me. And I remember walking into the, into the, um, the school and there was a line of students and they turned a corner, which is where the classroom I was speaking on, but I still didn't dawn on me that they were lining up to get into the room. Like, how could they possibly want to hear anything I have to say? That still was going on. I walked down, turned the corner. They disappeared into this lecture room. I walked in. The place was packed. And I expected at any moment someone go, someone to say to me, Philip, you're in the wrong room. What was actually going on is every student that was there the week before was back. And every student that wasn't there the week before was trying to get in. And that was the moment I recognized, like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Maybe. Maybe. Just Maybe. I've got something that the world needs to hear or the world wants to hear. And I proceeded to kick all the students out because I've got a photographic memory. Every student that I knew and I said, you were here. He goes, no, I wasn't. I said, you were here, get out. And he said, can I stay? Can I stay? I said, no, unfortunately, we have to get everybody else in. And that was a great catalyst. And that led to me being approached by the Bank of Ireland, one of the biggest, well, the biggest bank in the country, I believe at the time, to do a series of workshops across the country for young people. The feedback was off the charts, not because of me. I mean, it sounds very self-serving to say it was all about me, but it's about the conversations that we had. And yeah, to this day, I- um, self, ultimately, it came down to self-worth, um, you know, because at the end of the day, financial literacy and all these things that we want to pour into the education system or to individuals is fine. But if it's on a foundation of poor self-worth, lack of self-esteem, it's a waste of time because there's holes in it. Just all that information just drips through the system and they lose it. It was all about self-esteem. And I'm telling you, to this day, if I take out the feedback forms, if I want to tear up, I just read some of those to this day, and some of the feedback was staggering. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about what they discovered about themselves. Um, young people are deeply under underestimated in this world. As parents, a lot of us are too busy telling our kids what to do. We should be listening to our kids because they're the ones with a lot of the wisdom. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just getting teary thinking about you walking into that room and seeing all of those kids being there. I can only imagine how that felt. And... Um, just an incredible story. And I think the fact that you were talking to them about self-worth also speak vol speaks volumes. And, you know, I haven't known you for that long. We've only been in the same room twice, but your heart is so, so big. And the work that you do is so deep with people. And it doesn't sound like you even necessarily, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't know exactly like which direction you were going with this type of work, but you've always been able to go so deep with people. Yeah, I, I think the more I prepare for something, the more it's controlled and it's too intellectual, where if I hold a, a space for somebody, I've got a framework for all the work I do. But the more I create some space in a talk and I just go, you know what, guys, we're just going to take Q&A and we're just going to go to the audience. And I'm just going to work one to one with people and we just see where it goes. The more I do that, which is very um, it's tough because you're, you're very you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. A lot of speakers you know, tell me not to do that because you could get caught out or get a question you can't answer. And the end, the end of the day, if I'm really there to serve, I need to get out of my own way and stop trying to look good on stage and let go. And my work is very rich and it's very deep. And, and I used to almost explain that away. I used to try to justify that and go, yeah, it's deep, but don't worry about it. No, it is deep. And if you want to, you know, people want to step into my, it, we're going to go really deep. And I believe the deeper we go, the higher we fly. 
the greatest work I've ever done in my life is going into the depths of my past, into the hurt, into the pain, into the joy, into the love, into the success, into the blind spots to discover how they continue as a pattern show up today. And that is how I freed myself to actually live in and step into more of the things that scare the shit out of me every day now. Um, I think I said it on Facebook the other day. I said, people, I put a quote up that I, I, I create a small little quote, but I love it. And, and it's, and it's, and it sounds very arrogant. You love your own quotes, but that's not what I mean. I love the message. Um, people who only look forward are blind. People who only look forward are blind. We're obsessed with, with looking into the future, which the future is a fantastic place to consider. And we're also obsessed about living in the now, which is also very precarious and challenging. But I think we don't put enough precedence and value on considering our past, our story, and how it is formed who we are today and how it's ultimately deciding who we are tomorrow, whether we like it or not. And how we can use it to connect with others. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Can I share one quick nuance? Please. When I was in that classroom, just coming back to me, uh, you're getting all sorts of stuff out of me today. But when I was in that classroom, there was this beautiful young man, this young boy sitting at the very front row. And at one point he raised his hands and he said, what college did you go to? This was the second workshop I did. And I was just about to, I was breathing in. I was just about to give him the same bullshit line that I was telling everybody because I was so insecure. And that was, oh, I decided not to go to college because I wanted to be, a, you know, I want to go in and be a business person or in, in, I wanted to begin my entrepreneurial journey. Um, which was not the case. And I, 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 I was breathing in, I was looking at him, I said, I just can't lie to this kid. I just can't. And it wasn't that I was trying to lie. I just was so insecure. insecure. I just told myself this defensive story. And I looked at him and, I, and I, this shows how deep it ran for me. I said, laugh if you wish. But I said, I didn't go to college because I was dyslexic. And it was the first time I shared it publicly in my life, in a school, in a classroom, the irony in that, and there's no coincidence. And the absolute opposite happened to me. I expected judgment and sniggers and laughing. And this kid just went, wow, that's amazing. In other words, he accepted me for who I was. And that was the greatest gift those kids gave me. What happened because of that gift? I let go of the inadequacy. I let go of the insecurity to a large extent about this. I held this inside as, as, as my reason and my excuse for not growing as 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 a crutch so when i didn't do a good talk or when people didn't ask me to talk or i didn't get a coaching client i went well i'm dyslexic i could fall back in that victim story and it was a victim story it was real but there was a victim element i was holding on to it it was the first time that i was accepted someone saw me and said yeah we're not here for your dyslexia we're not here for that we're here for you because we believe in you so it allowed me to really identify that I was using it as a crutch and it was time to begin to let go of that, step out of that and realize that that pain has actually equipped me to connect deeper with humanity today. Mm, beautiful. If that makes any sense. It makes yeah. complete sense. And, you know, I work in a very similar way with my clients. And although most of the time I'm helping them with their businesses, nothing about our work is surface level because I agree that all of the, the most beautiful pieces and the pieces that will help you become more successful and transform your life and get the life that you desire are the really deep pieces. And I remember someone telling me, an ex-boyfriend in particular, he said, you're way too emotional to be able to help people. And I, you know, was, I always cried really easily. I cry all the time on this show. I've already teared up speaking to you. Um, and I remember thinking that I remember thinking maybe he's right. Like maybe I'm not strong enough to be able to do it. 
And I'm so glad that I didn't listen to that and that I've used it as, you know, part of my gift because all of my programs, like I said, they go so deep. I don't know how to do surface level. <laughs> For me, that doesn't work. Um, yeah. And I think that's it's so magical to work in that way because you get connected to your clients in such a different way. 100%. I just had a gentleman reach out to me the other day. This man doesn't need to work another day in his life. Uh, he's got all the money he needs and uh, there's something missing for him. Um, and and really, if I had to distill it down without obviously breaking any confidence and using names, he just yearns for connection. <clears throat> and he really yearns to connect within himself and connect with those around him. And I find that for a lot of people who are very, very good in the business spaces, that sometimes they're very good at building businesses because they have a very good, strong intellectual understanding of how to fix a problem. The problem is they use that same methodology that they use in their business to adapt it into their personal life, either personally or as it relates to other people. So they're using basically intellectual information or intellectual solution to fix an emotional problem. And the challenge is it's not the same thing and it doesn't necessarily work out. So a lot of my work is really helping people connect. Now, byproduct of that is their businesses get better and healthier and more successful and they recruit better people and they look after and create a better culture and so on and so forth. But that's the byproduct. And quite frankly, I don't care if my clients make an extra million or $20 or 10 million. It doesn't bother me. It, I, it's cool, but I love when I hear back that I'm connecting as much with my, my kids like I never did. I'm connecting with myself and I've, I'm connecting with my partner, my, my life partner in a way that I never imagined. That's the shit that really fires me up. I love that too. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want you to tell us a little bit more about your journey and how you got to the place of working with these incredibly successful people who are craving more meaning in their life. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health. Sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hi everyone, it's Emily Williams and this is the I Heart My Life show and we're back and if you've been listening, we're in the middle of an incredible episode with Philip McKernan. He is an absolutely amazing inspirational speaker and author and I would say you're a coach, but do you call yourself a coach? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I've, I've actually, that's been something I've really struggled with is, is, is what do I call myself and do I have a one line or an elevator speech? and. 
Um, and I've really struggled with that. And then I realized that that's actually society and myself trying to put myself in a box and I've just let go of the need. But if someone calls me a coach, I certainly don't get offended. It's, that's, that's absolutely fine. Love it. So take us back to that place. So you were at the school, you had those incredible workshops. And then where did you go from there in terms of building your business to where it is today? Well, actual fact, I had another uh, rugby team moment because the workshops were flying. I remember meeting my brother, Robert, uh, Robert McKernan, who basically does a lot of consultancy. And I remember he says, what are they? And I, there were feedback forums and we're in this uh, this hotel. And he said, can I look at them? And he went through them and he literally looked me in the eye and went, oh, my God. He said, if I got feedback like this for the work I did, I will be on fire. He said, I cannot believe this. He said, do you know what you're onto here? And the idea was that we, uh, the bank wanted to uh, bankroll me literally to set up all these workshops. And to be fair to them, they weren't looking to overexpose the marketing side of it. They just wanted to be associated with these workshops. And I was going to commit most of my time to this, travel the country um, and, and deliver hundreds of workshops every year, many, many workshops every year. They gave me a budget. They were going to pay me a certain degree of money. Everything was going great. And at the 20th hour, I literally got a phone call from the head office in Bank of Ireland. They said, by the way, this, uh, our legal department just want to know what degree you have. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, what's your qualification? And I said, I don't have any. And they went, oh, and overnight, boom, dead, everything. The whole thing, uh, all the energy, all the workshops, all the design, all of the putting it together, all of the feedback, all of these kids who didn't give a shit what degree I had, what I had studied. They were there because they knew I could relate to them. The feedback was like they had literally did a DVD and they had a film star and a sports star and they'd me. And I, I share this not to brag, but the students kept saying we relate to this guy because he sees us for who we are. He's one of us. He, he speaks to us like an adult, not like a kid. And the Bank of Ireland pulled the, pulled, the, pulled, the, pulled the rug. So again, I was just instantly transported back to standing in that hallway, looking at my name removed from the team. And it was just like, no, it's, it's just not working. It's just not working. So again, into that whole phase of doubt and trying to rebuild. And I feel that that's been a really large part of my life. To think that I get beyond the fear and you can move beyond it and never haunts you is, is wrong. Um, so anyway, I, I eventually I got an opportunity to go to Canada. I spoke at a live event in Canada and I had a different type of reception. It was a different energy because Ireland is, is quite skeptical. I say that with a lot of love. The UK is you know, a bit reserved and, and maybe less open to coaching like America is. And then people have this perception to Americans. Oh, should the Americans will buy anything. They're, they're, they'll buy any old shit that you give them, which is completely untrue. Americans are very savvy, very smart, and they will give you a break. They'll give you a shot, but you've got to be able to deliver value. So coming to North America was this opportunity, not just to deliver to a cold audience, also a warm audience, if that makes any sense, because they were warm to the message, cold in terms I didn't know them. So I could reinvent, I could experiment, I could share stories that I was afraid to share in Ireland. I could speak more of my truth, which is sad, and maybe that's my shit, but the reality is that's how I felt. So North America opened up, uh, specifically Canada at that time, I now live in the United States, really opened its doors to me and said, we'll accept you for who you are, not for who we want you to be. Mm. And was and the message was still self-worth that you were talking about? Really, I suppose, yeah. I mean, I expanded, I, I went wider, I went deeper, I went I went different ways. So I would approach the message differently. So for example, I did a keynote speech to a group of entrepreneurs um, last week and uh, I, the whole thing was about making better decisions, but really it was about intuition. 
But you walk into a group of entrepreneurs and say, I want to speak about intuition. They might go, yeah, great, buddy. Go get your yoga mat. Go hug that tree over there. We're too busy for you, potentially. So I'm not, again, talking about deceiving people. But sometimes you come under the lens of decision making, goal setting, whatever it happens to be, because that's the doorway people are safer with and understand. But when you're in there, then you can create maybe a deeper dialogue that you you invite them to participate in. You don't force them into it. So really, the essence is about, for me, it's about connection. It's about connecting with self, accepting our stories, accepting who we are understanding our identity uncovering our gift and then are we going to impact the world because we're not going to impact the world i don't want to work with you you've got to want to impact the world at some level and i relish the opportunity to challenge people to go deep so they can impact the world in a ways that they can't even imagine that's my that's my sweet spot i love that and so you got to canada you had this other experience what happened after that Yeah, I think the other bigger story, though, is that what was going on behind the scenes and behind the scenes, I was still holding on to this story, which I suspect will resonate not just personally with you, maybe, but also with a lot of the listeners is that I was still holding on to this story that I needed to make a shit ton of money. So I have the I could have the freedom to go and do what I loved. We often think that what we love doing, we can never monetize it, that actually there's not that opportunity to do it. Um, And I was holding on to this 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 story that I, again, take responsibility from uh, and for but I was told that story from a lot of speakers on stage that you got to make a ton of money and then go and do what you want to do. But no one said to me, uh, you know, what if you just did what you really want to do? What could happen financially, maybe? Um, Isn't that crazy? Course, I know. And it's so simple. And it's <laughs> like, I know, I, like people say, do what you love and the money will follow. And that used to piss me off because I go, I'm doing what I love. I'm doing it all the time. and It's still not coming. But I was the way I was doing it was wrong. I was doing it with all these expectations and the charge was wrong and the energy was wrong. But anyway. Um, I just eventually woke up one day and just said, the pain of not doing what I'm here to do far outweighs any rewards and financial rewards of trying to make the money. Um, and people think that I stepped into coaching and speaking because I had tons of money. Um, but no one actually asked me, is that the case? So at one point when the when all the markets went to shit, the real estate dropped in Ireland, we had $200 in the bank account. $200 in the bank account. So that's, I don't know what that's in pounds, but let's just say just over a hundred pounds. Yeah. And I remember looking at my wife and uh, I said, okay, screw it. I'm doing this coaching thing. And I sent out my first email. We didn't even have an email list. I don't think I was on Facebook. I don't think I had any type of, I definitely didn't have any software to handle my email list. And within what felt like four and a half minutes, but it could have been four and a half hours. Some guy writes back and says about effing time. And I wrote back to him and I said, what do you mean? He goes, from the day I've met you, I know this is the only thing that you are on this earth to do. I'm in. And I said, but you don't know how much it is. He says, I don't care. So he was my, Patrick was his name. He was my first client. He lives in Canmore in Canada. And he was my very first client. And the gentleman called Ian was my second client. And they gave me a break when I didn't even believe I deserved a break. And that was the beginning of the next phase of my life of believing that actually more, I have more to give to this world than I ever imagined. Wow. Incredible. Mm. I resonate with that. I sent out my first newsletter to 15 friends and family. And I think my mom responded and was like, awesome. And that's it. (laughs) Um, And I still remember getting my first client and making $442. James and I were in San Francisco on vacation. My parents had paid for the whole thing. And he was waiting in line to get on the ferry from Sausalito back to San Francisco. And I was sitting on a park bench trying to pretend like I wasn't on a park bench talking to this (laughs) potential client. And they signed up and it was like the best thing ever. Yeah. I love it. So that's how it started for me. And that was the first 
real paying clients. Like when I say real paying clients, if I didn't meet Patrick afterwards, I would have thought maybe he was my dad and my mother just throwing me a bone and pretending they were a client who believed in me. But actually, in fact, he was a real guy and uh, a wonderful human being. And he was he had a challenging story and he really challenged me. And I think my education in the space of coaching has come from the many, many people I've been very fortunate to work with now over the last number of years. So, uh, yeah, it's a different education. There's a lot of coaches in our community, and I'm sure people are so inspired by your story so far, and they'd love to know, you know, a little bit about what you created to get started. Did you already have a coaching package in place? Did you know exactly how you were going to work with these two guys? Or was it kind of just let's they came and let's put something together? Well, they came and I was 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 nothing together. There was maybe I was just I would I would show up every week like absolutely 100% there for them. And uh, basically we would go where the conversation needed to go and I would support them accordingly. And then we would also go where they didn't want to bring the conversation. So they would sometimes, you know, protect themselves by bringing the conversation in a particular direction, whether they were intentionally doing that or not. And then I would steer it back to what was really important. And I always, the one thing I'm very proud of myself is I've never given clients what they need I've, or, or what they want, I should say. I've always prevent, presented the conversations that I feel they need. I can't force them to have it, but that's that's the space. So, um, and eventually I had, you know, 12 or 14 one-to-one clients, you know, paying a decent amount of money. And that was my livelihood. And then one day I announced to my wife, who, by the way, just picture this, she's an accountant by trade. <clears throat> Excuse me, we just, we came from having $200 in the bank account. We now have, you know, a healthy stream of income coming in from 12 or 14 private clients. And I go to my wife and I go, um, I'm stopping doing one-to-one. I'm going to do a group coaching program. She goes, uh, trying to pretend she understands and is supportive. Uh, cool. What is it? I said, it's called Everest and it's going to be amazing. She goes, yeah, great. But what is it? I said, I don't know. But it's going to be amazing. And, and it wasn't leveraging my time. I n- never made decisions to leverage my time. It wasn't like I'm going to go to group coaching because it's more lucrative and it's better time, uh, less time for me and all. It was never about that. It was about impact. And I created a concept called Everest, which was my my six, most successful launch we've ever done. It was a group coaching. So the reason it was so powerful, it wasn't just me going one to one. It was people learning from each other. And that was really successful. And I went to a group model and then I started to do a deep immersive experiences, deep immersive retreats, offsite retreats, which came out of an exercise called the five happiest days, which is something we may talk about. Maybe I, we won't talk about. So life leaves clues. So all of these experiences that I run are based on things that I grew up with in my life. At some level. Ooh, I heard my lifers listen to that. Life leaves clues. That's huge. I agree completely. So you piqued my curiosity. What are these five things, the happiness? So the five happiest days is very simply it's an exercise I created, which basically you write down the five happiest days of your life. So it's an exercise I would encourage your audience to do with themselves first and then other people and bringing their kids in, bring their friends in, bring their clients in. It's just a very simple exercise. So you identify the five happiest days of your life. Now, they don't they ha- they don't have to be euphorically happy from nine o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock at night. They're just going to be in a moment like a, a laugh, a hug, a snuggle, a, a kiss, uh, you know, a moment like something you witnessed. And it's, it's hard for some people. They struggle to identify five because a lot of people um, focus more on the, the tougher or as I call the shittiest, shittier days. And you identify, let's assume you have five. You don't go to six or seven and you don't go to five if they're not sincere and real. So even if you have three, then you go back to them and say, OK, what was the number one? And you, you pick number one. And for particularly for men, but it's not just men, men and women, don't feel you have to put down your, your wedding day. It may genuinely be your happiest day, but don't feel you need to do that because your husband's watching or your wife is watching or feel you need to put down the birth of your children, for example. Like, what is your happiest day? And then you identify them, you hierarchy them, and then you ask yourself one simple question. Why? 
So my favorite day, best day in the world was a day uh, was my stag party, as we would call it in in, uh, in Europe and Bucks party in North America. Not because we went potholing or went gambling or they we went to the west coast of Ireland, did a workshop, pretended the bus got stuck in the mud later on the day. The bus buggered off and left us in the middle of nowhere. And we had to walk 14 miles through the most beautiful landscape to the local pub. Why was it? And then I go into why was that the most important day of my life? Well, because I got a chance to provide an environment to impact other people's lives. And I never imagined I could do that. And that has been I I run an event called Brave Soul every year in Ireland. That's exactly where I bring people. So when I did this exercise, I went back into why it matters. And then the invitation is to how can you create more of those days? So if you get married, it's not about creating more marriages. It's about creating more of those environments. And their second happiest days, my wife and myself, was a day we spent with kids in an orphanage in Sri Lanka. That inspired uh, the Give and Grow documentary that you mentioned earlier on, the Give and Grow retreat that we run, and building an orphanage last year in Peru to house these kids that were sex slaves and kids that were on the streets. So life leaves clues. If you go back in and the five happiest days is the simplest way I have managed to create, to emphasize and illustrate the importance of looking back on the happiest days, why they were the most important. And then finally, how do we create more of those days? Amazing. So one of the things that I always ask my audience or my um, guests on this show is, well, number one, do you feel like you've been able to create a life that's better than what you dreamed or envisioned? And if so, how have you been able to do that? My life is so much better than I could ever have imagined. Um, and I think the reason that's been created is because I haven't locked onto a dream or an aspiration um, or a vision of what it could be like. Because I think my thinking was limited and corrupted by a lot of the things that I've done, the places I've come from, the, what people have said to me. So my my ability, I used to goal set like crazy years ago. I don't goal set anymore in the traditional sense. I don't have a vision board. I don't have the f- top five things I want to do. What's, a, what, what's really created a lot of the success in the last year, it's been really unbelievable. The people I'm working with, the, the, you know, the, the, the projects we're getting to do. Um, for me, it's been this really, really challenging road of just letting go having an intention to making an impact but not being connected to how it goes and just allowing you know think about it and i guess i'm going to use a crude analogy if i'm if i wake up one day and said oh i want, I want a wife i go to the bar and i i have a vision of the, the girl that i want to marry and i have a little picture of her and i and no not her not and, I, and I'm, I'm forcing you know that energy that frenetic energy you're trying to make something happen and i feel that that is one thing that i help people dismantle and disarm them almost around that because that energy is a real pull energy and push and it's like negative. It's just what, what if you went to the bar and just are open to a relationship and see what comes, the person serving you the drink, which you cannot see and will not see because you're too busy looking at the door is the very person that actually would be the most incredible match for you in this world. So as I let go of needing certain things, the things that I never imagined are starting to show up for me. One of my favorite stories that you've shared, and actually I got to experience firsthand that really also displays the heart that you have, is when you called up that teacher, Trevor, and you thanked him for what he did for you when you were growing up. Can you talk a little bit about that? Really? You're going to you're going to you're going to throw that one at me? Really? (laughs) Oh, my God, you are so cruel. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, I called him live from Zurich from from uh, the Titan Summit. Uh, I didn't know they had that technology available. Uh, I reached out to him on Facebook, said, are you around tomorrow at this time? And can I call you? And I'm not going to discuss why. And he just said, yeah, here's my number. 
And I called him to thank him because I'd never thanked him in the way that I really needed to thank him. And I think a lot of us think we've thanked our mentors and our parents and people around us who have loved us and supported us when we didn't love and support ourselves. And that was my way of going back. And it was a selfish moment for me to, to do something that I deeply wanted to do in a very public way. But I also was using it to demonstrate that and ask the question to the world, like, have you done this to your mentor, to the person that loved, like stood up for you? But what I what 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 people at that event don't know is that I went on to do a screening in Dublin of the of the documentary, which wasn't a moment of arrival, but it was certainly a moment of um, it was a moment. It was a pivotal moment in a sense, like one of these moments where you get to do a documentary screening of your first documentary in a city you grew up in and were born in. And it was it was it was amazing. And I, in many ways and, and weird and hard. And my parents were in the room and my cousins and different stuff and my sister in law. And uh, I shared the story about my, my challenges in school and the teacher who believed in me. <laughs> and you wouldn't believe what happened. This shadow, because there was all the lights on you in this theater and the, the movie was about to go on and I was doing a and a initially for 15 minutes. And I shared the story and I said, but this guy, Trevor Garrett, believed in me and he stood up. And this man comes walking down and the next minute he walks onto stage and he puts his arms around me and the two, two of us just stood there and literally held each other for what felt like two hours, but it was probably like four minutes. And, uh, you know, I was a mess and I just, he, he, he didn't say one word, didn't try to take the limelight, just turned, walked back up, sat down. And uh, I just turned around and said, okay, I'm done. Let's just watch the film because I'm out of here. I'm 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 a mess. And um, so that was a again this circular circle. circle of life coming back. I don't know what it was, but that was the kind of the ending of that story to some extent, or maybe just the beginning. Who knows? Oh, I'm so glad to know that. That's so powerful, and I, that's why I wanted you to share that. Thank you for being so open because I don't think that we thank the people who have meant the most to us. Some of us do, but I'd like to invite everyone listening to do that because it is so powerful, and people want to hear that. They want to know they've made a difference. And go back to your teachers, you know, yeah. Peggy and Henry, whoever they are, and, and the teacher that, ah, but they get tons of cards. We make these assumptions. No, they don't, and no, no, they haven't. Go back, find out who they are, reach out to them, write a letter and say, you may not even remember me, but you said this to me one day and it has never left my soul because that person has got to face another 7,000 children over the next five or eight years of their life. Think about how that can inspire them to actually impact those kids. Mm. You're the person in Starbucks, you know, I'm talking about people who have really moved you and seen you for who you are, not for who society often wants us to be. So true. So final question for today. I know you're working on a new book. What are you excited about? What's in the works? What am I excited about? I'm very excited about lots of things right now. I'm writing a new book called One Last Talk. And One Last Talk is probably the most exciting project I'm working on right now. Um, and One Last Talk is basically a stage where you get to share your one last talk in 15 minutes. The one last talk you'll ever give to the world. And the really cool thing about one last talk is it's not a stage for people who are professional speakers or big names. Yes, they can stand on that stage also, but they're next to and shoulder to shoulder with the men and women in this world who don't live extravagant lives, who don't have multi-million dollar businesses, haven't written tons of books. So I would call them ordinary, but not ordinary, ordinary individuals with extraordinary stories. And we want to basically remind people of the power of story, the power of their story, how important it is to get in touch with your story, release it to the world and allow other people to know that their story matters too. So one last talk is 
definitely the most exciting project. And we want to bring that to the world. We want to have people delivering that all over the world, sharing that message. We want to give the concept away to the world. We want to build it together. We want to create a co-op model around it. Um, and if anybody's interested in having a look at it, one last talk.com, if I'm allowed to share that, yeah, I, are, I, please, should have, yeah. I should have asked, I should have asked your no, permission. I want you one last talk.com and we're giving all the money from the live event coming up in Boulder to a, to a, to a cause that we're very passionate about as well. Well, it's been such a gift to have you here and you mentioned the website for that. Is there also a, uh, your, your brand website where people can find you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, philipmckernan.com. So M-C-K-E-R-N-A-N. And people can go in there, they can go to the gifts tab and they can download the film, they can download a book. And again, they don't have to put in tons of information or any of that stuff. That That's all available. If they're drawn to the work, great. And if not, that's okay. That's cool. Thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure and gift. And everything you shared has inspired me so much. And I know the audience listening is also inspired. So thank you so much, Philip. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And for all the I Heart My Lifers listening, just remember Philip's story. Anything is truly possible. Continue to move forward. It's those little steps. Listen to the clues that life gives you. And remember that you too can create a life that's better than your dreams if you start taking action today. And until next time, I'm Emily Williams, the founder of I Heart My Life and the creator of I Heart My Life show. And I'll see you on our next episode very soon. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at I Heart My Life Now. And did you know, I'm on the radio every single day. Visit AmericaOutloud.com to download the talk radio app so you can tune in at 8 a.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. GMT.